the great Savior that we have and speak unto him. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to, to come and to reflect upon the one who, at one point in our life, all of us have to come to that place where we cry out for your help, to desperately plead that you might save us, that you might come to that place in, in your heart that you will look at our sins no more. And, and because of that, then we can experience life um, that will last forever and life to its fullest. And Father, we put our confidence and our trust in the one who who came uh, for us. And we praise in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Happy New Year. Ha- happy New Year. Now, most of the times when we say Happy New Year, we look at the calendar, it's January 1st. And you're saying, why are you saying Happy Birthday on, Jan- on December or November 30th? I don't know, November 29th. I haven't got the date right. November 29th. How can you be saying Happy, happy New Year when it's not even December yet? Uh, well, because if you look at the calendar, not from the, I guess, cultural perspective, but you look at it from the Christian perspective, in some traditions, the new year begins on the first Sunday of Advent. And so for many Christians, this is the beginning of the new year. And you might be thinking, well, why do they do that? Okay, and there's nothing wrong with taking the cultural year or the Christian year in terms of how you count time. But they look at it, uh, and we could look at it, is as you think about God's plan being played out, it begins really at Christmas, doesn't it? Because you really can't get to Easter before what happens? Christmas happens. And so God's plan that was promised in the beginning, we're going to see that in the, the book of beginnings, in the book of Genesis, was a promise that, that really Christmas would happen and Easter would happen. And so that's the beginning of the new year. And it, and as they reflect upon the calendar every year, they're, re- they're reminded, this is the beginning. And then you look toward his promised end. But this, this uh, particular season uh, at Grace Hills Church, we're going to try to help us all make Christmas not only merry, but meaningful. And, and sometimes what happens in churches is that pastor-type people like me, we tell you what to do, but we don't tell you how to do it. Now, you were a little bit more polite. Uh, in the first service, they said, how to do it? Like, uh, it was a little bit too quick um, that they, they recognized that we often do preach at you, not preach with you by giving you the tools and the hows as far as what God wants us to do. Well, th- this, uh, this season, uh, Pastor and people, we, we want to make it um, merry and meaningful, and we're going to take another uh, trip as far as what, what are some tools to help make that happen. And, and we've... Uh, as a personal uh, statement, our family, though that was not my tradition growing up, we, we've used the Advent candle to, to try to bring our kids into a sense of uh, what Christmas is all about and remind us uh, each week uh, what we're looking forward to. Uh, and we've also done that in our church, had an Advent candle up here, but we're going to try to take it to the next level in terms of at least giving you a tool, this is not the only tool, to, to say how can I progress in thinking deeply about Christmas in the midst of Christmas being such a busy, hectic time of the year. And so we've produced an Advent reading booklet uh, that we encourage you to begin today reading a little bit each day and reflecting about some of the major themes about Christmas. But also we've, uh, we've taken the Advent candle and said, okay, let's, uh, let's use that as a possibly object lesson at, at your homes or individually or collectively and, and see how that can be a reminder as well. It's interesting, you know, the Advent candle, particularly as you think about what it's built on, the wreath, which uses evergreens, which has the idea of that which 
you know, is green all year round. It's evergreen. And that's really how God's promise to us is, is that, that life can be perpetuated through the promise of his son. And then as you look at the candles, candles, particularly before we had electricity, were the, the objects by which we would light up a room. And as we think about Christmas, Christmas should be that particular season of the year in which we reflect that God has sent his son to be the light in this world. Uh, interesting enough, it was, the Advent candle was kind of pre-Christian. Uh, the Germanic people, they had something like a wreath like that. And, and they would light the candles because in the darkness of winter, all they could do is hope for the brightness of what? Spring. And as we think about this particular opportunity for us to reflect on how, how God's plan is unfolded, it begins really uh, in, in terms of, of its, uh, it, it's, it's finding itself on this planet be, began when God stepped foot on this planet. When he sent his son to walk the paths of Palestine so that we might not know about just about the power and the, and the majesty of God in the heavens, but that we, would, we could see that God is so concerned about us having a personal relationship with him that he communicated to us on a face-to-face basis. So Christmas is really all about understanding. It all begins here where, where God sent his son to this planet. And God, God the Son, became man. But as you look at the Advent candle, and we're going to begin with it this, this morning, it is, the Advent candle is an interesting uh, portrayal of, of what God has done in the midst of, of giving light. And, and so often we, we look at Christmas as, really, I mean, there, there are lights in the, in, in the malls and on the streets, and some people, our, our neighbor, uh, in fact, not only our neighbor, but one of our members of our church, he, he was the first on the block. He's got his lights up, you know, on he got them all up on Saturday, and he great display of lights on his home. But as we think about, at least historically, how Advent was celebrated, it was, it was celebrated slightly different than how we do. And some of us will complain about you know, people putting up Christmas decorations even before Thanksgiving. Some actually even do it before even Halloween or whatever happens. They, they start putting it up, and it's always filled with light and, and that which looks festive. But initially, Advent, if you understand it from that first Christmas and anticipation of what God might do, it was not a period of, of light. It was actually a period of darkness. I'm going to have them just to turn out all our lights in our sanctuary this morning. And, and if you had walked in this morning and, and we had nothing on and maybe not even the Christmas tree, and we can hopefully turn this off very easily, is... Uh, you would have thought, well, what happened at Grace Hills? Did you forget to pay your electric bill? <laughs> Did, uh, is, there, is there something wrong with our uh, electrical box? Uh, what's, what's going on? Because it's all dark at Grace Hills Church. Well, that first Christmas, that's what they were experiencing, darkness. The, the people of God, the people of Israel, uh, they, had, they had rebelled against God, and, and God had done that Numerous times when they rebelled, God would bring judgment. They would rebel and God would bring judgment. And, and now they had rebelled and, and now their, their previous uh, people that had put them in bondage had been conquered by another people. And those who had been in control, the, the nation of Greece was now taken over by Rome. And, and now there had been actually many years where God seemed to be silent. 
And have you experienced that? Sometimes you're praying and, and, and you're maybe reading the Word of God, maybe being in a, in a worship experience or in the fellowship of God's people, and everybody else seems to be getting it and, and you're not, and, and all you hear is silence when you think about God. And the time between Malachi and Matthew, it's called the, the period of 400 silent years. God raised no prophet up until John the Baptist arrived on the scene to, to, to pay the way for the promised one to come. And so for 400 long years, longer than the history of our nation, there was darkness. There was silence. And what they were doing, they were looking ahead for the promised one to come. Now, now we, at this period of time, we look back and remember the promised one who had come. But we will never really understand the meaning of Christmas to understand it was, it was birthed in the midst of darkness and silence. And so the Advent candle tries to capture that. And, and we can raise the house lights now. And so often in the tradition of using the Advent candle, that theme is at least appreciated and, and tried to be applied. With the four candles, and there's a candle in the center, and if you didn't build an Advent candle this year, or don't have one, you can buy one, or we even have some tools. We have some actually, some things you could use to build one. You can just take a candle at home and say, I'm going to light a candle every Sunday before, before Christmas. And the Advent season is considered the four Sundays before Christmas. And that's why it's on November 29th of this year. And, and you'll notice that the, the center candle represents in a much more glorious way than the other four candles combined, symbolizing, symbolizes Jesus who comes to be the light of the world. But there are four other candles, and if they are portrayed as tradition has it, uh, three of them are purple and one of them is pink. And when we get to that, that, that third Sunday, we will describe why that one candle is a different color. But I was interested in these are things I actually, even though I had observed Advent, at least to this particular object lesson, for a number of years, I never really done a whole lot of research on it. Because you can portray these candles with any character or event in the Christmas season. But there are, there are some kind of fundamental ones that are used to describe our approach to that which is to come, which is that Christmas day in which we celebrate the birth of Christ. But, but the four candles, being purple, they describe this as, as an opportunity for people to remember the darkness before the light, the promised one that is to come. And, and to remember the darkness in terms of personal application is to, is to remember that we are to spend some time, as writers I've read this week said, uh, to reflect and to repent. Be because if we think about God not answering our prayers, as at least we understand them not being answered. He always hears our prayers and always answers them, but sometimes we, we can't understand what he's doing. Is, if we're all reflective at all, at, to any degree, we, we begin to wonder, maybe the reason God is not answering my prayers in the way I would anticipate is, is there's not something wrong with him, but there's something wrong with, with me. And so as we reflect on any Christmas, as we look forward to any Christmas, part of, part of experiencing Christmas as far as being meaningful as well as potentially meriful is to, to recognize that, that God wants us to search our own hearts 
then why has God been silent for 400 years? Why have we still been waiting for centuries for the promised one to come? And it's quite possible because God wants us to deal with the sin in our own life, to turn from our own sin, to prepare for the one who will take our sins away. Now, to be able to go through periods of silence or darkness, the only way to survive that experience is, is to have hope. Is to have hope. So historically, the first candle to be lit in, in the most traditional of models is what's called the prophecy candle which is often taken largely from the book of Isaiah, which is filled with prophecies about the one who is to come. And to recognize that, that as we think about what Christmas is all about, it begins with hope. And, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you have your Bibles and your outlines this morning, uh, we, we will portray that uh, this day. And, and, and what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to just try to understand in the midst of being prepared for Christmas, whether we were in that first Christmas uh, culture, that time when, when Jesus had not come and they were awaiting his, his, his arrival, or whether we are looking back and realizing he has come, that we need to recognize because he did come that we, above all people, can get involved in God's plan. And, and what we need to be convinced that God's plan is a better plan. Because if, if there's a, another plan out there that's better than God's, I want to go down that path. But the message of Christmas is that God has a plan, and it's, it's the better plan as well as the best plan. God's better plan is better because Christmas gives us hope. But as we understand biblical truth, we've got to make sure we understand the language we're using. What, what do we mean that, that God gives us hope? I have a simple definition in your outline this morning. Hope is confident expectation of a better future. Hope is a confident expectation of a better future. And if you were in a period of silence and darkness and thought it was never going to get any better, you'd always be in darkness, you'd always be silent in your connection with God, you'd give up. But God wants us to know that that. Whatever we're going through now, it's going to get better. Whether you think you're in the best of days now, it's going to get better. If you think you're in the worst of days, it's going to be so, so much better. And that's the message of Christmas, that, that we can be confident. It's not wishful thinking. It's not like, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. I am convinced that God will come through for what he has promised, that the days are going to get better. And to appreciate that, we have the, our Advent readings and I encourage you to read this week. And what I'm going to do is give an overview or a perspective of reading these. And then hopefully that will be helpful as you, as you do it on your own this week. But God's plan, his better plan, is, is understood on his promises. It's understood in his promises. And particularly that's so much related to this hope that he has, this, this expectation of a better future that he gives because of what is to come. So this morning I want to go through seven things. There are seven days this week, beginning with today for you to read, and, and I'm going to try to put it in perspective that will, will help us out this morning. God's promises and plan, first of all, as we think about his better plan, we need to be extremely honest and open about 
why God's plan has to be better and why, he, why we're experiencing his plan now because, first of all, his plan was rejected. Rejected. Now, all the things we experience today, the loss of a loved one, like the Stevens family's experience right the day after Christmas, like some of you experienced the loss of loved ones this year, some of you have had all kinds of financial reversals. You've had issues related to your own health. There have been relational fractures within people that you care about, whether it's your immediate family or, or trusted friends. And you're thinking, how can this be a, a better plan? If God started this all, wall, all off, why are we in such a mess? Why are we in such a mess? And, may, and maybe some of you have begun the spiritual journey. You became a Christian. You say, okay. Now my life is going to be all put together just perfectly. And, and the mess still happens. And, and the only way to understand that, that, that God's plan has a plan, first of all, and some people think he doesn't have a plan because why is there so much chaos going on? And if we think he has a plan and it's a better plan, why, why, why is it so messed up? Because we need to understand God's plan was rejected. We're going to look at Isaiah 11.1, which is the first reading in your reading today. But in the midst of that, there's also another passage, Genesis chapter 3, which speaks about God's plan and promises that were rejected. Genesis 3.1, it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Is that what God said to Adam and Eve? I said, look, I've blessed you with everything. I want to give you one, one simple thing to test whether you're going to trust me or not. Don't eat of the forbidden fruit from the one tree. And, of course, what happens is Satan and the guise of a serpent, and that serpent was like the serpents or the snakes that we see today. It was a glorious being at that point until it got cursed. It took the hearts and minds of of people creating God's image, who, was, who were experiencing God's plan in its fullness. I mean, that place was a perfect place, the Garden of Eden. They were in innocence. They had not experienced personal sins. So there was no sense of guilt or rebellion against God. There was a simple test. Simply say, okay, trust me enough to simply not eat of the forbidden fruit. So Satan lies to them because he says, really, God doesn't want you to experience any good thing. You can't eat of any of the trees. And Eve comes back, and I'm not reading the entire passage there. He says, oh, no, no, that's not what God said. He said, you can only not eat of one or touch one. There's only one tree you can't eat of or touch. And, of course, what she did, she added, because God didn't say you couldn't touch it. Just don't eat of the fruit. And in the persuasion of mine, basically what the serpent says, he says this. He says in verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like who? God. And then he adds, you know, knowing good and evil. And whether they wanted to know evil or not, I don't know. But they, they thought, well, if it's already good now, if I knew as much as God knew, it would be even gooder, right? It would be better. And really the heart of, of all brokenness in this world and before God is that when we reject God's plan. And why do we reject God's plan? Because somehow we think that there might be some grass over there that's a little greener than the grass I have. It's what I don't know that might hurt me. And so I want to know everything God knows. I want to be like God. Now, we, we, not, we never struggle with that right now, do we? None of us ever struggle saying, I want, I want my plan rather than God's plan. 
I want to make my choices, not God's choices. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I'm, I'm, I'm the captain of my own ship. That's in all of us. That's in all of us. And it's so obvious when, when anybody we think who doesn't know as much as we do tells us what we ought to be doing, right? We reject that. And if we do that with people we can see, how much more so do we do it sometimes with God who tells us what to do? And then we begin to doubt, say, well, I don't know if your plan is better than my plan. And God is saying, look, I have a plan, and it's better than your plan. I'm telling you that your future will be better if you follow me. And that's what Christmas is all about. In the midst of darkness and silence, God has a better plan. And that plan has been rejected, but it no longer has to be rejected. Secondly, we need to understand, in terms of understanding God's better plan, his hope, is God's promises are never broken, are never broken. In Genesis 15, 1 through 6, and in fact, I'll just turn to that entire passage, and as you do your readings, there's references there, and there's some things we wrote down, but we want you to read the passages. In Genesis 15, um, we have God talking to Abram, and, and he's, he's, he's pleading with him. As Abraham pleads at God, in verse 1 it says, and, the, and these things, the word of the Lord, came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Now, what keeps us from experiencing life to its fullest, and even Christmas to its fullest, is that often, not only do we have doubt that God's plan is better, and so we reject it, but sometimes we're just filled with fear. We, we don't know what's coming next. Is the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, the entrance out of the tunnel, or is it, a, is it a train coming our way, right? We've all experienced that. Is it, I'm not sure what's coming my way. And so Abram, as he had heard the promises of God, it's one thing to know the promises of God. It's another thing to, to really trust in the promises of God. You know, God has said, look, don't be filled with fear. Why, why are we filled with fear sometimes? Let's just be honest, because there's some things out there that are unknown and are worthy of our fear. I mean, there are, there are things out there that, you know, they're scary. And for Abram, when he said this to him, there was something immediately he was afraid of. He had just rescued Lot uh, from, you know, those who had captured him, and now he was worried about the other kings that might come to, to take his life. And God said, look at if I protected you to bring back Lot, why are you so afraid? I'm going to be your shield. I'll protect you from anything beyond what I'm going to allow you to experience. So just trust me. But he goes on. He says this, Abram, verse uh, 2, says, Abram, oh Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Now, the reason I'm going through this passage, this is a passage in some ways is a little confusing. Because... If you know the larger story, and even what he said in verse 2, the promise of your great reward is, I'm going to make you a singular family, the father of, of many nations. Your descendants will be so many you can't even count them. Okay, have you ever had a promise with, with, with someone um, and you had an expectation of when that promise would, would come to pass? Maybe I'm going to take you out to, to, to a, a special meal. And, you, okay, I think it'll happen probably this week. And that week it happens, and they don't call you up to say, hey, let's go out to eat. 
And then another week goes by, a month and a few months, and they're saying, they're not, they're not taking me out. It's not going to happen. Well, with Abram, that's, that's what he was experiencing. You're, you're going to have um, uh, descendants that are, are, are so numerous, you're not going to be able to count them. And says, okay, uh, but I can count to one, and I haven't had the first one yet. And so what he does, he said, well, okay, God, let me help you out. Have you ever tried to help God out? Then that, that's what Abraham did. He said, okay, even though I don't, since I don't have any kids, how, how about just taking my, my, my servant, Eliezer, who was the, the, at the top rung of my servants, and I can give him all my inheritance, and you can bless him with this promise. We don't have to help God out. But God promises he will bring it to pass, even though it's not always in our time frame. He goes on verse 3, and, and Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring to you, one born in my house is my heir. And that's also a thing you don't need to do. You don't need to tell God things he already knows, but he decided to do that. Verse 4, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man shall not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. You'll have your own child. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. Have you ever done that? Try to go out in the sky and start counting the stars? You know, maybe when you're smaller, you try doing that. And, and um, have I told you I got a grandchild? Okay, well, anyway. You know, so it, she loves to count. She loves, you know, if you're going, walking up steps, she'll go one, two, three. Now, why do we as adults sound like that? You know, because we try to mimic. They sound cute, and when we do it, it sounds kind of like cheesy. But anyway, you know, I try to count and just like exactly how she counts. And, and she's gotten pretty good. She's got up to 10. Now she's working between 10 and 20, 11, 12, 13, you know. And she gets up to 20. When she gets to 20, she starts all over again. One, you know. She doesn't go past 20. As, as Abraham was looking in the sky, he probably started counting. Wow, man, there's a lot of stars up there. Let me see how many. I don't know if he, if he went to two, 100, 200, 300, 400, and they go, man, there's too many to count. Not only will God fulfill his promises, he'll fulfill them much beyond what we can imagine. And we might not experience it all in this life, but we will experience all of it in the life to come. That's what Christmas is all about. In the midst of the silence and the darkness, we need to understand that God's plan is better because we messed up his first plan. And then secondly, as he promises us, and it's found so much in the birth of Jesus, it starts there, that his promises will never be broken. Thirdly, this morning, and a little bit more rapidly, <laughs> we also determine that God's promised one is full of the Spirit. Let me read from Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. And we will go through the, the rest of them quite a bit quicker this morning. But Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. We have the familiar passage, which really is kind of the heart of our reading in, this year in um, our Advent readings. It begins with the, Jesus being the branch, the branch of uh, the promises of God, the one who is to come. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will... Spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And that just simply, as you think about uh, where life comes from, some, some of it comes from the obvious places, and you see the beauty of God's creation. But some of it comes from that which has been at least partially destroyed. Uh, we have some, um, we have many more trees 
surrounding our property than we would ever want or plan. But we, we, we bought a home in the midst of uh, eucalyptus groves, and they're just everywhere. Well, we've had to take some of them out because they've been falling on our house and every other place. But uh, sometimes you grind them out. Sometimes you just take them out at the stump. But you know what happens after a, a number of months? Out of that stump comes some growth. And what, what God is saying here, in the midst of Israel looking like it's been destroyed, out of that stump is going to come a branch. And that branch will be the promised one. And it will be from the line of Jesse. And the reason we have hope, it's called a prophecy candle, because we know that the future promises of God will be fulfilled because the past promises of God have already been fulfilled. And that branch, that one who is promised to come is Jesus. And he'd be from the line of Jesse, who was the father of David. But this one who is going to come is going to be a unique one. Look at verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The sevenfold manifestation of, the, of God, who is the spirit. And I, many times I've said, you know, why, among other reasons, why do I believe Jesus is who he claimed to be? Because if God became man, who would he be like? He'd be like Jesus. And what was Jesus like when he's here? And you can see here, he was full of the Spirit. And the Spirit of God manifested in his life uniquely because he was fully God. He was the one who would be Lord. And when Jesus spoke, he spoke with authority. Why? Because he was Lord, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. He was the one who was full of wisdom. No one was able to confound him. You can... You can ask, you know, sometimes people come to me and they think I'm the Bible answer man. And I don't mean the one on the radio, but they think I know everything about the Bible. In case you haven't figured this, I don't know everything about the Bible. I study it almost nonstop, but you can stump me. But you could never stump Jesus. He's one not only knew wisdom, but he had complete understanding. And as you think of this list, you begin eliminating the people who could be possible candidates to be the promised one. Okay, who was the one who was really a leader, Lord? who speaks always with authority. Now it checks off quite a few of us. How about a person who's full of wisdom? Well, that takes a few more of us. How one who really understands things? Well, that eliminates just about every one of us, and not all of us already. He is the one who gives counsel. He really is able to meet people at their point of need. He is one full of strength. And no one suffered more than Jesus, and he was always suffering out of strength, not weakness. He knew everything, the spirit of knowledge. And people, once they understood who Jesus was, they were filled with fear. That's a whole sermon in of itself, and we've talked about the healthy fear of God. But if you, if you look at the disciples with Jesus, once Jesus revealed himself in his power and glory, they, they wanted to remove themselves from him. I mean, they were convinced he loved them, but once they realized that he was God in the flesh, they said, oh, we are we, unclean. We don't, we don't need to be in your presence. And it was a healthy fear. So what is Christmas all about? It's, it's understanding that he has given us hope. The expectation, the confidence, there's going to be a better future. And understand that completely in the Christmas story. We need to understand that that plan, that's going to be a better plan, that is a better plan, was rejected initially. But in the midst of that context, we understand, need to understand that his promises are always going to be fulfilled. In the past, in the present, and the future. We understand the, the promised one who is to come is full of the Spirit, all, which means all the qualities of who God is. And, and then just kind of in summary form, we need to understand that God's promises 
uh, promises that we have a we have a purpose in Genesis 1 28 says God blessed them this is Adam and Eve and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it Uh, there's a longer kind of backstory to this as well but basically it means I, I created this planet for you to rule over you are the highest point of my creation. You are not just one animal amidst other animals. You are uniquely created in my image. And in many ways, as we think about a future hope, we need to realize as long as God leaves us here on this planet, he has a, he has a reason for us to be here. You know, as Hap went, went home to be with the Lord, and I'm sure there were times he was wondering, God, why are you leaving me here? My, my health is gone because God had a purpose for him. It's like Paul said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But I will remain on in the flesh to be a blessing to you. So Hap continued to be a blessing in the midst of failing health. And, and so God always has a purpose for us. And that began the beginning and continues as well. That's God's perfect plan, his better plan. Fifthly, God promises a, a fatal blow to the evil one. And, and that's part we need to realize is this plan that's been messed up, God's going to fix and he said that in the very beginning. Genesis 3.15 says this, And I, this is God speaking, will put in enmity, there's going to be a war, uh, between you, the evil one, the serpent, uh, and Satan, and the woman. And the woman would be mankind, and particularly birth from the woman. And between your seed and her seed. This is kind of a complicated passage, but it's fairly simple if you just kind of break it up. He's saying to, to Satan, you're going to have followers. That's your seed, those who descend from you. John 8, 44 says that, that Satan is the father of lies and all those who lie after him are falling after their father. I'm going to put a, a war between you and mankind and I'm going to put a war between those who descend from you and those who are going to descend from a godly line, the, the woman of faith. And then he says, I'm going to take one of those, he, out of the seed of the woman, and Jesus was born of a virgin and shall be with a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And he, the promised one, Jesus, shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, part of understanding the Bible is to take it at its simplest uh, sense. If you had to decide where you're going to get hit, would you rather get hit on the head or on the heel? Would you rather get hit on the head or on the heel? You'd rather get hit on the heel? uh, Let me get people up here, and I'm going to take a two-by-four, and I'm going to hit you on the head or on the heel. Where would you rather get hit on? The heel, right? You don't want to get hit on the head because that could be fatal, right? And that's what he's saying here. You think you're winning, but when Jesus is put on the cross, it's really going to be a heel wound rather than a head wound. And he said that's the promise that the the enemy is going to be destroyed at the cross. I, I think many times... Satan probably thought he was winning when something happened. He probably thought he won when, when he tempted Adam and Eve and they, they, they committed the sin. But God said in the very beginning, I'm going to be the, the winner at the end. That's God's, God's plan. It's a better plan. Number six, God promises there are going to be consequences for sin. And part of the illustration of that is, again, in the very beginning of the books of, of God's revelation to us in Genesis, where, where God said, as he observed the evil that was in this world, God said, and know the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. But God provided a way. He provided the ark to carry God's people who would experience his grace. And why is that? Because God has a better plan. 
not left for our own resources to, to survive God's judgment that is to come, but to realize that he and he alone can forgive us. And then finally, number seven, God promises it will be awesome, but not easy. And just as uh, 12, it says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. Now, that's the awesome part of, of God's plan. I mean, would you like God to show up in some kind of a verbal form, uh, a personal form, say, well, I want you to know you're going to be great. You're going to be blessed. And now your blessing will be such awesome, an awesome experience for you. It'll be awesome for everybody else. And you think, all right, I, I'm buying into this. Then I'll say, so, and it's not in this passage, but it's in the, the, the record of Abram. But I, I want you to know it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. And we've already touched on that before, but that this journey that God places on when we become one of his followers, God says, I'm going to give you fullness of life, but I never said it was going to be easy. And so in the midst of understanding that God has a better plan, that plan is filled with hope, knowing that our future is better than our present or past, it's not going to be easy. And just like this Christmas for you, because of a variety of circumstances, it might not be an easy Christmas, but it can still be awesome. Because your hope is found not in what has happened to you, but in the one who gives you all good things. This Christmas will be a journey for all of us. I was sharing, and I'll make this brief. I, we, uh, as a family, had an opportunity to, to meet the family and, and be with uh, uh, our, our extended family up in Lake Arrowhead this year. For, we left on a Wednesday night and came home Saturday. And, and so we had Christmas in the mountains, and it snowed on us. It was just an awesome experience. And part of that experience, I, I met somebody, that, again, making a long story short, who was taking the Pacific Crest Trail um, journey. Anybody know about the Pacific Crest Trail? You, you start in Oregon, go through Washington, all of California, and you're supposed to end up someplace a little right on the Mexican border. It, it's a rather um, a lengthy little trek, 2,663 miles. You go from an elevation, basically sea level, to 13,153 feet at, at, at its height. You go through places of desert to places of, of snow drift mountains. All that you have is you, what you carry on your back. And, and for much of the trip, and sometimes you, you join up with some people at various times, but often you're just simply all alone. I met a man who was on that journey. He had just spent five months and had three more weeks to go. And I was fascinated. I just, you know, had him tell me all kinds of stories about what that was like. And then I, and I said, well, well, that's a fascinating journey. Do you have any, how would you describe your journey with God? And so then he began to kind of tell me, I mean, out there in the midst of everything, he said, you know, I, I've never been much of a church person, though I, I do go at Christmas and and Easter, interesting enough. And, and I, I, I feel closer to God when I'm out there than any other place I've, I've known. And I said, well, you know, the Bible says that. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God, and God has placed within the spirit of every man that there is a, there is a creator, a designer. And, and then as he explained, you know, where he'd been and where he was going and 
how he had an unknown future. He wasn't sure what was going to happen next. He was looking for some kind of epiphany, some type of finding himself during this five-and-a-half-month trip. I just explained what Christmas is all about. Now, you go to church on Christmas, but what the message of Christmas is that God became a man. He became a man because we are hopeless without him. And he came because he wanted us to know that you don't just see God in his power and majesty in the heavens, but you can know him face to face, personally. And that's what Easter is all about. It's, it's, just, it's just, uh, just making sure that that glorious story is an event, really, at Christmas time. But that same person went to a cross, died, and rose again. Now, he had had, interesting enough, a number of people kind of, he'd run into people who had some of those Christian experiences. And he, he was at that point of thinking and reflecting about it. But for him, he was still on the outside looking in. He's trying to find God in nature rather than find the one who, who created everything in nature. As we think about Christmas, Christmas gives us hope, but it's found in a person. And we have rejected his plan, but we can accept his plan. We can see that Jesus is all we would imagine God to be if he became a man. But we need to recognize that though his plan be awesome and better, doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. But we can place our hands and our life in the one who can be trusted. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this season in which we had the opportunity to reflect and to repent and to remember the one who came, the promised one. And if there be anyone here this morning that doesn't know, you might they just... Admit their need. Believe in Jesus Christ as the one who died on the cross and rose again. And commit to follow him as their Lord and God. And for us, as we enter into this season, help us to make it meaningful by reflecting the the plan, the better plan that has always been from the very beginning for us to not only know about you, but to know you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As we close this morning,